I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Technically, you're not supposed to mention the name mm. alive. It's like calling it. How dare you? <laughs> Where were you? I was told by my parents that people who write poetry are crazy. They're okay. going to end up crazy. <laughs> the next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. Today, we open with two novelists from my hometown of Montreal. One Anglophone and one Francophone. They've come together in a bid to win this year's Canada Reads debates. Catherine LaRue's latest novel, The Future, translated from French, is on this year's Canada Reads shortlist. And her fellow Montrealer, Heather O'Neill, will champion it in March during Canada Reads Week. Heather's a well-known novelist in her own right, with a shelf of books to her credit, all drawing on her beloved Montreal as muse. And Heather is a past winner of Canada Reads. She won in 2007 for her debut novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals. And Heather and Catherine join me in a few moments. And in a half an hour, our contributor Ryan B. Patrick talks with Drew Hayden Taylor. The self-described blue-eyed Ojibwe has been writing stories and plays for decades, shaped by his unique and funny point of view. Drew's here today to talk about his new novel, a horror-tinged thriller, Cold. And to close the program, I'll speak with Safia Fazlul about her intriguing novel of marriage and drug addiction, The Red One. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Leonard Cohen's song, The Future, paints a vivid apocalyptic picture of what's to come. His chilling lyric, I've seen the future, brother, it is murder, is the epigraph of Catherine LaRue's latest novel, The Future. The Future follows a woman desperately seeking answers after her daughter's murder and her grandkids' disappearance. It is set in a near-future Fort Detroit, a fictional French-speaking neighborhood hit hard by poverty, violence, urban decay, and toxic spills. While the plot and the setting may echo the grim vision of Cohen's song, at its core, Catherine's novel, The Future, is about coming together and building something new amid the ruins. The Future was translated into English by Susan Oriu. Catherine LaRue was on the show in the fall. She joins us again today in studio because The Future is one of the finalists for Canada Reads 2024. And also joining Catherine in our Toronto studio is Heather O'Neill, who will champion The Future on this year's show Heather is an award-winning author, poet, screenwriter, and a familiar voice to our listeners. Catherine and Heather, welcome back. Hi. Thank you. Catherine, what went through your mind when you heard that Heather will champion your book on Canada Reads? Um, I I feel bad saying it, saying that it came from me. So I'm going I'm going to repeat I'm going to repeat what my best friend, whom I told in confidence mm-hmm. this news, uh, her initial reaction was like, oh. Well, then you're going to win because we had both heard that she's amazing and just a wonderful speaker and someone who really thinks deeply about books. Uh, I know her also as a collaborator because she's one of our readers at Alto, which is 
my uh, my publisher in Quebec City, and um, I know that you have this superhuman ability to read books in less than 12 hours and stuff like that. So it made me feel very confident and hopeful. That's high praise, Heather. Uh, now, if you weren't already compelled to say something very nice, you'll have to at this point. What made <laughs> you choose the, uh, uh, the future to champion on Canada Reads? Oh, um, there were just so many things I could talk about. And this is one of the things I always love when I read a book. I love when I stop and I just say, what? did she just say? <laughs> What is that reflection on humanity? You know, she had these interesting ideas of how people interrelate. And so with my experience writing about childhood, there was, there was so much I wanted to dig into. And I was like, that's a world I can live in for months. Um, I, want to st I want to get into the book a little bit. And I mentioned you, you opened the book with this line from Leonard Cohen's song saying, I've seen the future, brother, it is murder. Um, why did you open it with that? Um, First, I love Leonard Cohen. And I, in French, it's l'avenir, so there is a little bit of distance. But in English, I knew that it was going to be the future. And I, I could not not acknowledge that I was basically stealing a title from him or, or, or in the be best case, you could say that I'm giving it a nod. But mm -hmm. one way or another, I felt like it had to be acknowledged. And also, I have a lot of these quotes within the book. And they get more and more hopeful, I would say, but this being the first one and the beginning of the book, there's a few pretty dire scenes and awful things that happen to the characters in the first few pages. And I wanted to sort of set the tone for that. And so in a way, my idea was that we'd have a progression from like worse to finish it in the light, hopefully. And just to give uh, listeners and, and readers a bit of a background, this book, The Future, it, it's set in a time where Detroit never became an American city. So in the 1700s, the French settled in Detroit and, and they've never left is the, the premise and the, the background here. And now it's North America's second largest francophone city after Montreal. So tell me, Catherine, why did you choose the, this alternate history to shape your story? I've written books before where the characters, you know, they speak French because I write in French, but it's set in British Columbia or in the United States. So theoretically, the people that I'm, I'm giving dialogue and lines to are Anglo, Anglophone or speak Spanish. And that makes me feel uncomfortable about giving them too much local color in the way that they speak. And I thought, well, was it, isn't there a way to make these people French somehow? And then... As I was reading about the history of Detroit, the, the answer sort of like came on its own, you know, like, well, there was a time when people spoke French on this land. And I thought, what exactly happened for, for that part of the world to become American or to switch to English? I realized that it was just a small thing in a treaty and it could have very well gone the other way because, as many people know, Detroit is weirdly situated north of, of Windsor, for instance. You might be actually blowing people's minds with that information. I don't know if any everybody's aware of Detroit being... No, there's a song by Journey, Steve Perry says, uh, born and raised in South Detroit, and people who know are like, yeah, that's Windsor. There is that's no Windsor. South Detroit, exactly. <laughs> um, Heather, you're familiar, as a you know, long-time Montreal, you're familiar with both French-Canadian culture and history and language. What did you make of this fictional French community in Detroit? Oh, the history of it was so interesting because I had sort of been exploring the French influence on the South in Louisiana and how 
French mythology has kind of worked its way into different aspects of cities everywhere it's been. And I didn't know it was in Detroit. And it's so funny because when I was in Detroit, I saw the most spectacular thing I had ever seen. And it was this car and it was it was decorated out like a cockroach. And there were all these people dressed in dystopian costumes and little children too like demons on it and everybody chanting around it and then I found that it was for the the Nain Rouge and then this Nain Rouge becomes a character that everybody fears in um, Catherine's book and I found out that that's actually a myth and then Catherine is explaining how it comes from French culture with a mix of indigenous culture and in that area they created this idea of a Nain Rouge who came to and was this kind of trickster figure who causes trouble and every year they have this parade where they just go all out in this kind of decadent Detroit into the world like there's always something so poke post-apocalyptic about what's going on in Detroit. But for me, what I loved about it, too, was that as it identified this kind of isolated group and what happens to a language when it's on its own really reflected the French-Canadian traditions in Quebec and how the language there has become its own dialect. And it's so unusual in its own way and it's included in like Anglophone influences and just different sayings. So I love that sort of parallel, what she's doing in Detroit and how it becomes this colloquial invention of language. And one of the things I really wanted to highlight on Canada Reads was around imagery and ideas. It's sort of that French philosophical novel, as mm-hmm. whereas English were very contained by this Victorian plot. Whereas a lot of French novels, they're so absurd and all of a sudden, like, you'll turn the page and it's a turtle speaking. And you're like, where does this turtle come from? And then you just kind of go with it because Mm. um, Quebec writers, they're just wild with structure right now. Yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting aside. Uh, You talk about Ney Rouge and you talk about the history of that. For me, Ney Rouge, uh, growing up in Quebec, was the company that drove you in your car <laughs> home when you were too drunk to drive. That's what, you know, uh, just uh, talking about how language and things change and where they come from and, mm-hmm. you know, the liberties we take with uh, with language. Uh, Catherine, the main character in the book, Gloria, comes to uh, Detroit alone under terrible circumstances. Her estranged daughter was murdered. We find out her two granddaughters are missing. What drives a mother and grandmother like Gloria to uh, in her search for answers? The first thing that I knew about Gloria was that she was a very passive person. And there's no, no real reason for why she's become estranged from her daughter, why she stopped calling or visiting. She let it go. She didn't try harder, and her daughter was pulling away because of addiction and other problems in her life, and Gloria didn't even know. And I think when she shows up in Fort Détroit, she realizes everything that she didn't know about their lifestyle. She barely knows the granddaughters. And this is the first thing that gives her sort of a jolt, where she realized that in her passivity and without having done anything, anything wrong, she did do something wrong because she, she wasn't there for these people. And now she has to make up for it. You know, we can't time travel. We can go. We can't go back in the past. But when we get a second chance at making up for mistakes in the past, maybe that's a little bit like time traveling. You get to try again, but better this time. And so that becomes her obsession. Mm. 
um, she feels a huge sense of responsibility towards these kids. And because what happened in this family is sort of representative of what happened in the city at large, where there's a bunch of children living on their own in the woods, and the adults are more or less aware of that. Even the even the good ones, quote unquote, don't really know what to do about it. And and in a way, Gloria's mission becomes a larger mission that all the the grown ups of the community take on. And they try to find a way to help the children in a way that's not intrusive, that's respectful of the way that they've been living. So that's that's one of the things that the novel was centered around. We mentioned that Gloria is estranged from her daughter, has regrets, but we also see in the book that she's constantly thinking about the joyful moments uh, that she did have and, and also those missteps and how both would have affected her daughter. I wanted to ask you, Heather, you write about your experiences as a mother. You're very open about all of that. And mm-hmm. what did you take from Gloria's journey? Uh, it's interesting because um, as someone, yes, who was abandoned by their mother, I was I was outraged by Gloria in a lot of ways that I feel like maybe some readers would be more compassionate. But I was like, as a grandmother, you left Judith and her daughter. You knew Judith had mental health problems. You left her alone with the daughter and it just descended into chaos and squalor because Judith could not handle it. And you knew, and she had addiction problems. So the whole time, I mean, one of the things that Catherine's book is about is how you need a community to raise a child. And Judith was left all alone with her children and she could not cope with that. And for me, then it's like the grandmother showing up after everything's over with. I'm like, how dare you, woman? Where <laughs> now, were you? Now. Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, she does feel a lot of guilt and she's, and she's you know, do, going through all the motions now. And one thing I liked, I liked this idea that children are allowed to revolt against their parents and even, like, take things violently into their own hands. That was sort of a radical idea that sometimes I put forth because someone asked me what my biggest regret was in life. And then I was like, I should have killed my father when I was nine. (laughs) And they were so shocked. And I was like, why? My life would have been better. I'd have only done, like, three or four years in juvenile detention. And... People don't know how to to process that idea, but it's like when you are living with abuse as a child, like there's no way to to get out of it. And so these children figure out these extreme ways to escape their abuse. And um, I thought it was really noble and interesting for Catherine to take that Mm -hmm. position of a mother who becomes sort of a monster to the children. And instead of protecting them, it's quite the opposite. Right. And I'll just clarify for our listeners that uh, the grandmother, who was the protagonist, is Gloria, and her daughter, who Heather is quite angry with, is uh, <laughs> actually you're more angry with Gloria, but her, her daughter is, is Judith. And then there are uh, two granddaughters as well. And I wanted to talk about there's this community of wildlings living separate from the adults. And you have this real knack for drawing, you know, vivid pictures of these uh, communities and their environments uh, from the nicknames to the dialogue to the, the dynamics that they have in their little society. Where do you pull inspiration to create this society of kids? It was actually one of the most difficult things to, to, 
to build and create in the novel. I, I knew exactly what, what I wanted, but initially in the first drafts, it was so boring. I hmm. kept concerning myself exclusively where with, you know, how did they sleep and how did they protect themselves from the rain and from the cold and how much they ate. And I, I reread that first draft and I was like, well, I'm treating this. I'm approaching this like a mom who wants all these fictional children to be like as comfortable and well-fed as possible. And this is not how, like, of course, children will be, will want to feed themselves and protect themselves from the elements and stuff. But they are also, especially when their life is difficult, c perpetually immersed in their imagination and in play. And that's what was missing. But I really tapped into, like, play, imagination, And the interplay of like absolute uh, kindness and love and spontaneous generosity that children can show, and absolute violence and mercilessness that that, that they have in other circumstances, and those two things are, are not mutually exclu exclusive in children. They they cohabitate very beautifully, I think. As the father of a kid who plays hockey, I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I see that every uh, Saturday and Sunday. Heather, uh, you've written about, you know, I'm thinking about uh, lullabies for mm -hmm. little criminals. You've written about young people living on the margins of society. What is what is so compelling uh, for a writer and a reader, do you think, about th that world? It's always a wonderful opportunity for language, which I love because it's almost like children are little aliens who are perceiving the world for the first time and have such unusual observations. And I find as a writer, we're always looking to express the inexpressible in a different way. And children just kind of naturally do that. That's why we're always repeating what they say because yeah. it's so odd and the structure of it is so strange. And um, one of the things I loved about Catherine's book was she understood how groups of children worked together and I found you know I think it was it's something that we're losing now but I you know growing up in the 80s we always kind of everybody was locked out of their house yes. you know you if you, you wouldn't dare go in or into anybody's house because um, mm -hmm. the mothers were lock the door go play and then you'd be beating each other with hockey sticks and they'd be like work it out yourselves <laughs> um, but just how children have different They give each other different roles in the way they're very intuitive about each other's strengths. And one of the things I, I dislike about education, the way education is, and those children that don't fit in, they're not valued in the same way and they're taught that the way their brains work is different. Mm -hmm. Like my daughter, for instance, she has dyslexia. And, you know, a lot of people in my family had dyslexia, so I'm so familiar with it. And it's always when they go to school, this attempt to make them think in a different way. And it's so unfortunate because when you meet dyslexics, they listen better. They're funny. They have such discursive ways of speaking. They always insist, which is why they annoy teachers, of thinking outside the box. And then you look at the inventors and innovators like Einstein to Marlon Brando, who are all dyslexic. And it's like, why are we curbing that? So in Catherine's world, it's sort of like those dyslexic, crazy children. They're like, well, I don't want to read. Instead, I will be the warrior. Don't mind me. I have a fleet of pit bulls behind me. You do the <laughs> reading. Tell me what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And so it was this beautiful sort of acceptance of one another and even um, the, their appearances or weight. They just everybody has a role in the that perfectly suits them and is not assigned by their family or background or what teachers think. It's just so by what they intuitively enjoy doing.
The novel depicts a community grappling with environmental catastrophe. I wanted to ask you how you see the real-world implications of pollution and climate change. Heather, how do those environmental themes in the future resonate with you? You see it through the children's perspective because they are trying to survive on the land. And there's a scene when the river becomes polluted. And then there's this, a troop of of deer that approach. And the deer have been poisoned. And the deer have almost become these mythological zombie figures because they have so much pain in their body. And the children just sort of almost bow before them in their suffering. And it's this... Um, anti this like strange Bambi moment, but the Bam like Bambi's mother has been killed by the environment, mm-hmm. and all the children are humbled by the sort of horrors that can happen to the water. And so you see it on such a visceral level, and how this book is about regrowth, and it's sort of the children who are part of the regrowth of nature. They're trying to somehow forge a new way of being after all this destruction. Mm. Catherine, Gloria, your protagonist, finds so much uh, support and resilience and hope through her neighbors. And Mm. in the future, community is a very powerful force for survival for the children, as we've mentioned, obviously, but for Gloria as well. Uh, Why did you choose this narrative over the... uh, the lone wolf yeah, narrative. Yeah. There's this book by Rebecca Solnitz that really got me thinking. That's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And she looks at earthquakes and floods and certain wars and the Halifax explosion. And she looks at what the narrative ev- around those sorts of events is, which is like, oh, everybody's going to turn into a monster. And like, we're all going to like start stabbing each other and stealing toilet paper from each other and, and stuff like that, which can happen. But for the most part, when something terrible happens, cooperation is the main thing that is witnessed. So I think it's important to show that because I think that there's an element of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of the stories that we tell. If we tell the story of like everybody turning into monsters and killing each other, then maybe that's what people will expect and they will prepare for that and they will act accordingly. And I think it's also interesting to think about who does the like each person for themselves narratives serve. And I think it serves the people in power who want to justify putting more cops and more more weapons and trying to control this disorganized chaos of just a bunch of people, you know, trying to, to figure out a difficult situation. Yeah. I also really thought it was fascinating, the idea of childhood as a kind of class or that a class we could look to for solutions mm-hmm. because there's something, you know, just having been a runaway as a child, like when you leave your home, like children, they look for other lost children and you immediately, like you'll see them and you're like, hello, may I join (laughs) you? And they're always like, yes, you may. (laughs) And then you become, and they'll share wherever they're sleeping, their resources. And, you know, it's a very like difficult life because you have nothing. But as far as a community goes, you immediately when you leave home, you look for the other children. And it's like, where are the other children hiding? And what is it in those groups? Because they're never looked at as sort of, um, what can we look at the homeless children for their political arrangements? But that's what kind of Catherine does in this in this really interesting way. And what is it about their goodness and the way they share with one another? It bears mentioning that you're a Canada Reads veteran. Your debut novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals, won Canada Reads in 2007. So how do you feel about being on the other side of this, now championing uh, a book, Catherine's book in this case? 
I, fi- I like it a lot more because it feels more active and that, um, you know, when you are on a short list, there's so much anxiety because there's nothing you can do. You have no insight into what's going on behind the scenes. I remember when I was on the Giller shortlist with Andre Alexis talking about how we were looking for signs and he had seen a skunk a day that he was wearing a black hoodie with a white stripe and he was like, okay, the universe is on my side. And then I was talking about little signs. And that's all you can do when you're on the short list. You're just vulnerable to the fates. You just pray. And you're treating reality the way you, you read a novel, like, oh, that, that means this. And this is, everything becomes a symbol. Everything, yes. everything becomes literature around you. How do you convince the other panelists that, uh, that this is the one book that Canada should read right now? Um, One of the things that I want to do is really focus on the strengths of Catherine. I don't want to win by tearing other people apart or trash-talking certain genres. I mean, my daughter is still not over last year how they said you could just finish a graphic novel in half an hour so it's not actually literature. She brings that up to me, like, (laughs) monthly, if not, like, and she's like, and I told her I was going to be in Canada Reads, and she's like, don't do something like that, please. <laughs> You'll embarrass me, mother. Exactly. So, and also as a writer, because you have so much respect for what goes into it and the intentions, every book is imperfect in a way. And great novels are all imperfect because we as human beings are made up of imperfections and our imperfections make us who we are. So I really want to show the layering in Catherine's book and the literary elements and just how she elevates Like she's sort of at the top of her game with what she's doing and has worked a different style. So I just want to highlight all the ways in which she makes you able to see the world in a different way. And there's a line in the book where she talks about language and and literature and how it's about putting words to the unspeakable. And that's what writers do. And once you articulate an idea that's floating around, then everyone has access to communicate that idea. All right. Well, Heather and Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I, I should mention Catherine is holding her heart right now yes. and grasping at all moved. the wonderful <laughs> words that were said about her work. Uh, thank you for being here, and, and good luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Catherine Leroux is the author of The Future. It was translated into English by Susan Oriu. And Heather O'Neill is an author, poet, and screenwriter. She's championing the future at the 2024 Canada Reads Debates. Canada Reads airs from March 4th to the 7th. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Alison Graves, the writer of Soft Serve, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1.
We are a month or so into the new year, and my colleague and friend Ryan B. Patrick has been plowing through his TBR list and doing lots of interviews. He joins me now to tell me about an interview he did with Drew Hayden Taylor. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ali. How's it going? So I'm pretty good, first of all. Uh, Second of all, I know Drew to some degree. I know him to Mm. be kind of a Renaissance guy. He does all kinds of things and does them all well. Writing books, both fiction and nonfiction. Plays, filmmaker as well, right? A lot of fun on Twitter, slash X, whatever you prefer to call it. Very cheeky. Very cheeky. And so he spoke to you about his uh, latest novel. Tell me, Mm. was that a cheeky conversation? It was. So Drew Hayden Taylor, he's a very funny, he's a very likable guy. So it was a pleasure to talk with him. Um, So his new novel, it's called Cold. And it's a really cool mashup of thriller, murder mystery, horror, police procedural. Um, Ali, do you know what a Wendigo is? I do not. So a Wendigo is a terrifying creature of legend. It's huge. It's hairy. It's murderous. Supernatural being from the spiritual traditions of Algonquin speaking First Nations of North America. So this Wendigo is cursed to wander the land on feed on flesh, preferably human. So this Wendigo is dropped smack dab into the story. So Cold is set in Toronto and it's about what happens when this creature of legend uh, intermingles with these characters whose backgrounds range from indigenous, white, and black and they're all hoping to make it out of the story alive. Yeah, as, as, as I would be too if I was faced with this <laughs> Wendigo. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Ryan. Here's your, uh, your chat with Drew Hayden Taylor, author of this new book, Cold. Drew Hayden Taylor joins me now in our Toronto studio. Hey, Drew. Good morning. How are you doing? Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you, sir. Um, so let's talk about Cold. Cold is your new novel. So I literally went into this book, Cold, to use a terrible... <laughs> 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 you, you do this professionally? <laughs> Humor, to use a play on words. I read no marketing copy, no blurbs. But then you soon find out it's about a very dark tale about a creature of legend. Who is that creature, Drew? Um, well, it, technically, you're not supposed to mention the name mm. alive. It's like calling it. But for sake <laughs> of the discussion, it's the Windigo or Witigo. Mm. The name varies slightly from uh, nation to nation, mm. but it's primarily a uh, Anishinaabe or Cree, um, a creature of legend. So this is a thriller. It's a murder mystery. Obviously, we don't want to reveal too much, but uh, maybe you can give me the elevator pitch in terms of what cold is all about? It's about three, possibly four, depending on, on, on your view of the, uh, the size of the, each of the characters. All independent that all come together in downtown Toronto with the arrival of said creature. So you have an academic professor of Indigenous literature. You have a kind of over-the-hill hockey player. And you have a Caribbean author journalist who all end up in this mixture and um, have a a bit of an adventure. Mm. My introduction to Wendigo is from comic books, from Marvel comic. A D-list. I, think, I think Wolverine fought <laughs> yes. Wendigo. Or Wolverine was, or yeah. the Hulk. Or he's a D-list villain. So how does that comic book depiction match up with the depiction that you know? Well, the Wendigo is a cannibal spirit, and I don't remember that comic book uh, creation being particularly uh, hungry in that department. <laughs> I think they were going for the big, large uh, creature. The interesting thing about the Wendigo spirit, per se, is the surfaceness 
of it is cannibalism. But if you peel the layers back and look underneath, what you need to do with most indigenous legends, it's about the evils of appetite. Yes. The most obvious one being hunger. You get so hungry that you want to eat anything and everything. The Wendigo ends up eating its own lips and fingers at various points. But you go beneath and it's about greed, right? You mm. you, you see all these um, movies and stories about rich people who have more money than they'll ever need but they still want to make more money. So it becomes, it's a never-ending hunger. So you talk about greed, you can talk about lust, any of a number of things. Mm. So the Wendigo is just a representation of, of appetites gone wrong. So it's a book about horror. you got the murder mystery. But it still retains that cheeky, uh, humorous tone that you're well known for. Why is that? Why, why didn't you play it straight here? I don't know. Um, I have frequently been asked by many people, why do I work so much? in the world of humor, and I can't really give you an answer. I don't sit down and say, this is going to be funny, I'm going to be funny about this and this and this. As with all good humor, as with almost any other avenue of storytelling, it has to come organically from the character and the story. So I didn't sit down and try to be funny. It just, if you know your characters well, you know the story, it should just flow naturally. Mm. And I think when you, you know, you go to any lot of horror horror movies or whatever, there's a certain amount of humor in it. Humor and and horror go hand in hand because right. sometimes it's spontaneous, sometimes it comes out of nowhere. In many ways, they have similar roots. Mm-hmm. And orbiting around this mythical creature are a bunch of um, characters um, you mentioned. I, I really enjoyed the interior lives of these characters, particularly the indigenous ones. Um, it feels so lived in. Like, obviously, we're talking about past traumas or, or pain, stuff like that. But essentially about these characters who are just living their lives and doing the best that they can. What's the key to writing authentic characters, authentic indigenous characters? Oh, well, I, I try, <laughs> try to live as an authentic indigenous character, mm. I guess. That's what I try and do. I'm one of those people who has entered the world of literature, of writing, having ha- no background in the world of writing. I'm, mm. You know, I write uh, plays, I write novels, short stories, creative nonfiction, documentaries, television, and I've never taken a writing course in my life. Mm. I just sit down and let the story tell itself. My rules for writing anything is entertain, educate, and elucidate. Mm, yeah. So one character, main character, who's orbiting around this is Elmore Trent. He's an Indigenous professor working at a Toronto university. He's experienced pain stemming from his experience in residential school. Um, and it's something that informs his life as an academic as he teaches Indigenous literature. And I like how the book casually name drops books like Wob Rice's <laughs> Moon of the Crested Snow or Daniel Heath Justice's um, Why Indigenous Literature Matters. Uh, what's the trick to kind of working these things in organically without it seeming forced or like homework? Well, yeah, it, it has to come, again, organically. Mm. With an earlier novel I did called Motorcycles and Sweetgrass, I would try and give it a, something of a unique spin, something unique to that particular novel and that one. Um, one of the characters kept saying one of the three greatest inventions by white people is mm. uh, the flushing toilet, um, um, iced tea, or any of a number of things. And nobody's ever commented the fact that he, but he does that like seven or eight times during the book, uh, even though he says one of the top three, right? Nobody ever counts him. So with this one, I was just working on it, and I think, I don't know where, but somewhere early on, if that would be interesting to do a little mini, pers- not a review, because... 
I'm not reviewing it. The character is. Right. Right? Because uh, uh, one of the reviews is of Almanac of the Dead, right? Which I loved that book. It, uh, I, it's one of those books I read and I thought, well, there's no point in writing anymore. This sort of says it all. <laughs> but not everybody may have liked it. So I tried to give it a different perspective. Same with everything else. I just thought it's so much fun to just sit back and look at an existing book that I love, that I've read or reread, and try and look at it differently. Mm. And so with looking at these books, and I, you know, for obvious reasons, I know most of the writers already, because we're, we're a small group, you could fit most of us in um, these offices here. <laughs> it was just an opportunity. And I heard back from Wabagija Grice, who just basically sent me a note saying that he, he found it very funny and flattering nice. uh, uh, with the reference to his book. Nice, nice. So one of the characters is a black woman named Fabiola. And I really enjoyed this character because her disconnection to her heritage is very, very interesting. And I really enjoyed her interaction with one of the um, Ojibwe characters. And they have this really cool conversation about how there's no one experience from their culture. Like there's no one shared black experience and there's no one single indigenous experience. What was it like writing those scenes? I was at first worried that, you know, I'm taking... I'm not taking the voice of, but I'm portraying a voice of a, of a black character. And one of the things I constantly get asked as an Indigenous writer by non-Native writers, usually settler writers, is I'm writing a story with a, a Native character in it. Can I do that? Is that okay or is that cultural appropriation? Mm-hmm. And I always tell them I have absolutely no problem with that. Um, as somebody who both lives on my reserve and lives in the city, I have people coming in and out of my life, black, Asian, Jewish, etc., and they're part of my life, and I write characters with that in them, but I never write from their perspective. That's different. So if you're writing something with Native character, that is fine. I have no problem with that. Just do not write from—it's not their story. They're part of another story. Yeah, so all of these characters revolve around this really cool murder mystery around the Wendigo, and there's a lot of violence and terror and, and definitely a lot of gore. But a lot of this violence is directed towards female characters in terms of, and it kind of parallels that whole missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. What was your approach to writing the violence and the gore in this book? There's actually technically three murders, two of women, one of a man at the very end. So I was very conscious of that. Mm. Um, And also the the whole murdered and missing indigenous women thing was, was always on my mind when I was writing that. I wanted to understand that, represent that, but not exploit that. Mm. So it's just sort of me being very much aware of the dangers and the problems of being an Indigenous woman in this culture, even though I've taken it to in a completely different um, direction with a horror novel. But when you are part of the Indigenous community, you cannot be unaware of that any more than of the residential school, of the scoop-up of any of a number of different... Uh, effects of colonialism. Mm. Um, so my first introduction to your work through was um, Take Us to Your Chief, which came out 2016, which is a short story collection, sci-fi elements. I really enjoyed that. But you've done it all, like like novels, nonfiction, theatrical plays, over 20 of them. But essentially, why do you do what you do and, and write what you write? Um, the simple fact is I can't do anything else. Mm. I have no serviceable <laughs> talents, so I became a writer. Mm. <laughs> um, and you're laughing, but that's essentially true. Mm. I, um, I cook a little, but that's about it. I like to think of myself as a contemporary storyteller. And in this age, there's so many different ways of telling stories, right? And part of the fun is coming up with a story and what's the best way to tell that story. Yeah. Is this story 
a novel? Is it a short story? Is it a play? Mm. For theater, I love the instantaneous, making them laugh, making them cry, making them sit there and think and feel uncomfortable. With novels, it's much more personal. You're sitting alone wherever you are, in a bus, in your bedroom, whatever, reading this. And I'll either, hopefully with this book, I'll either make you laugh or I'll make you scared. Mm. Hopefully, I'll always make you learn something. There's elements of all three of that in this, Drew. Thanks for the conversation. It's been a delight. Thank you. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Drew Hayden Taylor. Drew's latest book is the novel Cold. Nisha has a perfect life. She's beautiful, married to a successful man, and surrounded by friends who adore her. At least, that's the picture on social media. In reality, Nisha's husband is unfaithful, her friends are judgmental, and she's haunted by a childhood trauma, a pain that she numbs with a powerful drug called the red powder. As Nisha spirals into addiction, a mysterious stranger forces her to confront the past. But is he real or just a figment of her drug-fueled imagination? This is the intriguing world we enter in The Red One. It's a thrilling new novel from Safiya Fazlul, whose previous book, The Harem, was inspired by her own experience as a receptionist for an escort service. Safiya was born in Bangladesh and spent her early life in Norway before coming to Canada with her family when she was 11. She joins me now in our Toronto studio. Hi, Safiya. Welcome to the next chapter. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So before we begin, I should give a warning that our conversation will inevitably deal with abuse and trauma. But before that, let's take a look at some of the themes in this book that you you talk about. Number one is marriage is a big theme here. And this, this novel takes a look at a marriage between two young contemporary South Asian Canadians. What got you interested in, in marriage as a subject? I mean... I'm recently married. Well, six years. That's recent, I think. It's recent. <laughs> and that's funny because when I got married, I feel like everyone in our circle got married too. And many times, you know, I, mean, I love my husband. He loves me. But you wonder, like, are we getting married now because everyone else is doing it? Or are we doing it because it's the right time? Yeah, you write about what you know often, right? Yeah. I'm sure some of this is not what you know, but where your imagination took you. But I wanted to ask about this character, Nisha, your protagonist. When she is... 12, she's living with her immigrant parents in this inner-city Toronto apartment. She's described as a brilliant golden child who spends hours reading in her bedroom. Where did you draw inspiration for, for that, Nisha? Uh, Nisha's like a character of a lot of people that I've known. But her childhood being the golden child, that's definitely... Um, uh, drew that from my older sister, actually, because she was she was going to be the doctor and I was going to be the lawyer. Okay. So her whole childhood, the whole thing with, you know, you're firstborn and you have to get us out of the ghetto. You have to, get, you know, make us rich. That was definitely drawn from my, my own sister. Hmm. Yeah. Now, that's nice that you give your sister credit, but I've heard that you also were a straight A student. You were writing poetry in Norway when you lived in Norway. So you're selling yourself short right now. I think you were quite bright as you well. Know, I was told that I was told by my parents that people who write poetry are crazy. They're oh. going to end up crazy. <laughs> eventually so it wasn't something you know they, they it's not their fault because back back then there were only two jobs that would actually get you somewhere in Bangladesh sure. which is law and medicine so it was like choose one yeah your sister chose medicine so you're in law what's poetry what's that is that that's not gonna make you a dollar right right, right. Yeah. yeah um you grew up in Scarborough in a largely Muslim community and you've talked yeah. about this double standard when it came to expectations for for girls and boys and I'm very familiar with that double standard as well Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how it shaped you as a writer. When I first came to Toronto, 
I was very lonely. My first language was Norwegian. So I would just I would spend a lot of time alone because I was afraid to like go out and play with the kids because I couldn't speak their language. And when you're alone, I mean, you need to get your feelings out somehow. So I would just write, you know, a lot of, a lot of the poetry was just nonsense. It was just emotions, no structure really. But I feel like it became like an outlet mm. to get my feelings out. I didn't, couldn't really tell my family about how I felt because they were, my parents were always working, two jobs each, right? So it was just me and, you know, my notebook. You said that living in that area, uh, you've written that it was like a test of loyalty. What, in what way was that the case? You know, everyone's there. We're all, you know, uprooted from where we were and we're watching each other. You know, who's going to turn more Canadian? Who's going who's gonna to slap the culture from back home and come here and turn, you know, quote unquote white? So it's always a test of loyalty. Like, okay, you're doing good in school, but hey, do you remember the Quran? Are you reading the Quran? Are you still being a Muslim? Mm. And I just remember like everything, everything I wore even in that building we lived in, they would have a comment on it. So you always kind of have to, you know, be more Muslim with in that building, in that community. Right. Got to be on guard every time you come on home guard, or exactly. leave the house. Yeah. 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 So let's go back to your protagonist, Nisha. Everything changes in Nisha's world, that straight-A student, you know, the golden child. Everything changes for her when she is sexually abused by the son of a family friend. Mm -hmm. That abuse goes on for months. Nisha does not tell anybody about what is happening to her. Why why does she stay silent? Um, A lot of Muslim households, especially, you know, new, new immigrants. You know what? I take that back. Not new immigrants. I think every household, Muslim, Christian, doesn't matter, white, brown, you know, you you don't talk about sex. So she, who is she, she going to talk to about it? She's never spoken about sex with her mom. What is she going to say? It's just a thing that's full of shame. You know, I mean, if you're living in the community, we can't even show your ankles. Showing your arms means you've, you know, you disrespect your whole background. How are you going to sit there and tell your parents, someone's touched me? That's why she's just suffering in silence. She can't mm-hmm. really do much else. And she's also, at that point, she's so young. She doesn't know yeah. what to do. Yeah. Her, her concern is, are my parents going to find out? What are they going to think of me? Mm-hmm. And she also, you know, of course, with sexual abuse, you feel dirty. You don't want people to know. Yeah. To that point, when Nisha finally does confide in her mother, she doesn't get the support that she's looking for. She wants some justice, but her mother instead swears her to secrecy. And, and I want to know, what, what message does that send to a daughter? And what are the implications of that? Right? Rather than seek justice, yeah. let's just be quiet. I mean, it tells your daughter, you know, your, what happened to you doesn't matter. Our reputation is way more important. Okay, you got hurt. But our honor, that's first. That's first. And everything that happened to you is secondary. So just, you know, bear it. Even if you're in pain, just be quiet about it. Mm. And I feel like it really makes makes daughters just feel like they don't have any power. They should just do whatever, you know, their family tells them to do. Sure. She does say at one point that as she's thinking back to that time, uh, as an adult, she's saying, my mother chose image and reputation over honesty. That's what really affected her because she can't believe that you know, her mom, the person who should be saving her, chose something as stupid as, you know, what people think of them over something that's traumatized her and ruined her whole life, really, because she couldn't focus after that. Mm. Her her studies were done, everything, her self-esteem in the gutter. There was no her anymore. It was just like a shell of her. Between Nisha's mother and uh, the perpetrator's sister, young girl Sonia, who enables the abuse, what what did you want to say about the complicity of women in cycles of violence? I, I absolutely hate writing about characters, especially brown characters, where they're just weak and passive. I actually put Sonia in there because, I mean, you know, we can be mean too. We have agency. Like she, you can say she's a victim herself, but she's dealing with it a whole different way. You know, she's aggressive. Whereas Nisha's more, you know, all the, all the aggression she's feeling, she's 
uh, reflecting onto herself with her drug use. Yeah. Let's talk about the drug use, too, because it's not the drug use that people would think immediately when you hear about drug use. You know, as this trauma casts a long shadow on her life, she struggles with anxiety and depression and then takes increasing amounts of a substance called the red powder. It Mm -hmm. is something that is well known about in the community. Many people take it. It is clearly downplayed by the people who kind of serve it to others almost, you know, out of a a sense of hospitality in some cases. Tell me about the substance. What is it? Is it a real thing? Does it exist? It's it's a fictional substance that I came up with. Okay. And it has like, it's, it's a dual meaning. So in a way, it's kind of like in our culture, like a lot of a lot of Muslims smoke and it's not really, you know, not as looked down upon as drinking, but it's just as bad for your health. And she does mention that it's like it's for the upper classes, which almost kind of makes it okay to serve because, you know, it makes you look good, mm-hmm. even though it's a drug. Sure. So you have that meaning and you have the other meaning that the whole red powder is basically her moving away from this uh, pre-prescribed life her parents have given her. So the more of it she's taking, the more she's leaving it. Right. Yep. And the red powder is, you know, as you say, it's dangerous because of how accepted it is and in certain circles. Yeah. But in this case, it's also given to Nisha by her husband, Azar, in the morning. He almost insists that it be, you know, in her tea. Yeah. Why does he do that? Because she's a woman. Who cares about a woman's problems? He just wants her to shut up. That's it. And it just shows that in the, in our culture, we have... You know, mental issues, who talks about mental issues? You know, if you're crazy, you're crazy. No one wants to hear that. How did you get crazy? What affected you? So he's like, he doesn't want to hear her backstory. He's not mm-hmm. interested. He just wants her to be quiet. They are trying to get pregnant, Azar and Nisha. And like many women in their 30s, Nisha feels a lot of pressure around that. But she also kind of dreads the idea of being a mother. She sees it as kind of a death sentence for herself. I found that very interesting. Do you understand why she feels that way? It's because she she's reduced herself to her looks because, again, she's been told, you know, appearances mean everything. Mm. So for her pregnancy, she relates it to, you know, getting fat. Nobody wants to be that fat auntie, you know. So she mm. that's how she's looking at it. Right. And yeah. you're smiling as you're saying this to me. But there were some moments where I was like, whew, I have to take a deep breath here. I took note of one line where she talks about being exiled to the domestic wasteland, forced to change diapers and make chai until her wrinkly hands <laughs> succumb to arthritis. <laughs> this is bleak. This is bleak. This is a, yeah. I, I'm mean, honestly laughing because you know I was there when I was pregnant with my daughter, and I'm like, you know, this is it. This is it. I'm gonna be an auntie. This is over for me. I'll never write another book again. It's over. <laughs> but then you know, I, I had my daughter, and I've never been happier. So I'm kind of laughing at the ridiculousness sure. of that thought processes. You know. Yeah. Um, your last book, The Harem, and this book the red one, they both consider what it means to be free, but in, in very different ways. In the harem, this is a young woman who's trying to escape the restrictions of her very conservative upbringing by operating this high-end escort service. And here, the freedom is very different. It's within a, a marriage and within a community. Why do you keep coming back to that complexity of freedom? I think I think for me, because I mean, it's a personal thing, I always feel like when you're, you know, you're brown and you live here, I always wonder, like, am I actually free to do what I want to do? And many times I think to myself, I'm in Canada, I can do anything I want. I'm married now, I don't live with my parents. But other times I'm like, you know, I, I, I can't identify with anything, you know. Mm. I went to Norway as a baby. And, you know, I, I can't relate to any certain ethnicity or culture. So for me, it's always 
am I really doing what I want to do or is it because of these ties to my family? Mm. So it's always been a struggle that I've been going through. So I think I'll always keep going back to that, that theme. Uh, you know, on a related note, you know, you in this book and your other work, essays you've written, you confront directly these questions about gender expectations, traditional values that we have in South Asian culture. Yeah. I imagine there are people who feel that you are too critical of the South Asian community at large. How do you deal with that? And, and does that bother you? Um, not really, you know. I think my dad fought really hard to get here so I can speak my mind. Mm. So I'm going to keep doing that. But I can understand people's sentiments. It's not fair that our culture gets, I mean, in, even in like in Western media, our culture is usually, you know, talked down on, you know, they're, we're backwards and all that. So I can understand why people are sensitive to it. But I think it's important to talk about it, you know, because our, our community is not perfect and no community is, but that doesn't mean you just shut down all, all conversation about it, right? So I think it's important to keep talking about it and really couldn't care less if people don't like that. <laughs> hmm you have an essay from 2015 it's called An Incompetent Muslim. I connected with this uh, essay quite a bit. You talk about having a foot in two worlds, right? Now, you just spoke yeah. about never feeling like you fully belong. But in those two worlds were secular Canadian and Muslim South Asian. And, and you talk about how you can leave that feeling uh, and you describe it as a, a quiet rejection from both sides. Yeah. What does that look like? Um, it looks like staying quiet in certain crowds. You know, you see something and you don't agree with it, but then you have to be quiet if you want to keep being a part of that crowd. Mm. So again, it comes back to loneliness and writing because that's the only way you can get your message out. You know, if I'm with a bunch of people from my, my Muslim community, I can't say certain things and I know it. I can't dress a certain way, I know it. And I'm okay with it, I'm, I'm respectful. Mm. But if I'm with, you know, my more Canadianized friends, you know, I'm not gonna show up at the club with the shirakamis. Like there's a certain way you gotta behave. And you just, again, you shut up and you're lonely about it and you write about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel like there may be a benefit, too, just hearing you talk with this self-awareness and, you know, maybe being on the fringes. Do you think that it can give you a clearer view of things as well? I think it's, it's, there's a huge benefit because I think a clearer view and also because you start viewing yourself as just a person of the world and not, you know, you don't belong in any specific group or category, which is great. I think every human should try to be that, you know. Mm-hmm. A global citizen, if you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for your time today, Safia. Thank you so much for having me. Safia Fazlul is the author of The Red One. She was with me in Toronto. And by the way, support is available for anyone experiencing sexual violence. You can call the 24-hour crisis line at one 392 7583 And that is it for our show today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And my thanks this week to Emily Carvacio, Trevor Carter, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, Canada Reads contender Jessica Johns, the author of Bad Cree, will be here with the athlete and broadcaster Dallas Sunius, who is defending Bad Cree. And I'll speak with the risk-taking and innovative writer Sheila Hetty about reordering her thoughts in alphabetical diary. I'm Ali Hassan. Thank you for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.